We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 13. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Persia in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Persia, they went on to Poseidon Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. 
But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, good afternoon. Uh, It's great to be in the book of Acts again today. We're uh, going to be digging deeply into Acts chapter 13. Uh, I just want to say uh, happy birthday, Lake. Uh, super exciting uh, that you guys have made it four years. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope you're having a great celebration down at the lake. Uh, for us here, I, I've been super excited all day today because I get to be with people and I, I really love being with people. So on the way to the hub this morning for our new EAM congregation, I was genuinely excited, just like buzzing with excitement about seeing more than just a handful of people at one time. So it was really exciting. There's a group of people downstairs here at the Hub as well tonight. Uh, so hey, everyone downstairs. Uh, it's great great to, um, to be here with you this evening. Well, Acts 13 is a turning point in the book of Acts. Up until this point, the main uh, character has been the Apostle Peter. And there's been a a few support acts along the way, people like Stephen in chapter 7 where he preaches and and then he actually gets killed for his trouble. In in chapter 8, you've got Philip, the Ethiopian, uh, Philip who preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, But largely, it's been about Peter. And in chapter 13, 
the focus really shifts. From this point on, Peter is not the main character. Uh, instead, we actually begin to pick up the missionary endeavours of the Apostle Paul. And for the rest of the book, from chapters 13 through to chapter 28, Luke follows the life of Paul. But this shift of Peter to Paul is actually a, a bigger shift in the book, book of Acts. What this shift in the main characters signifies is that the Jews have largely rejected the good news of Jesus. They have failed to see that he is the promised Messiah. And so from now on, what we're going to see is the good news of Jesus going to the Gentiles and they will hear and believe the good news. If you like, Acts chapter 13 is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. Because the Jews have had the gospel preached to them over and over and over again, and they've been persistent in their unbelief, and it results in Paul and Barnabas turning to the Gentiles. Have a look at the way it kind of ends in verse 46. It says, Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you, the Jews, first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made a light, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So in this chapter, uh, Peter fades into the background and the light to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul, takes center stage. So let's have a look at the way it unfolds before us. In chapter 13, verse 1, have a look there. It says, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So what we have here is the, the sending of Paul and Barnabas. And what's interesting is, is that the Holy Spirit and the church are both involved in this activity. It doesn't really tell us how the Holy Spirit prompted them to set apart Paul and Barnabas. But the context is, is that the leaders of the church in Antioch, they were fasting, they were praying, they were worshipping the Lord. And in that context, the Holy Spirit prompts them to set apart Paul and Barnabas. And then after they've fasted and prayed, they send them off with the blessing of the church which really is a great model for thinking about any ministry. Uh, the church and the Holy Spirit, they don't work independently of one another. The way the Holy Spirit wants to send people out into the world or even into your local ministry context is alongside and, and in co cooperation with the local church. So it's not an individual thing. God uses leaders to appoint people and send them into the world. Now, what is it that the Holy Spirit is setting them apart for? We see it there in verse 2. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Now, what is this work? Well, you see the work that they were doing all through the chapter. Verse 5, they proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Verse 7, the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Verse 12, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about our Lord. Verse 32, we tell you the good news. Verse 43, Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. In verse 44, it says, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. In verse 46, Paul and Barnabas say, We had to speak the word of God to you first. And then in verse 48, it says, The word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. See, the work that the Holy Spirit set them apart for and the work that the church sent them into the world for was to proclaim the word of God. It was to preach the good news of Jesus. That is the work. Now, there's lots of work that we can be involved in in this world. We can work as a doctor or a shelf stacker or a builder or a psychologist, a, a physio. You could be an engineer. And all of those things are, are, are good things to do. But we're not to confuse those things with the work of teaching the Word of God. That is of primary importance here in, in the book of Acts. Right back in Acts chapter 3, we actually see the importance of this work. The situation was that the church needed to come up with some way of looking after the Jews, uh, sorry, looking after the, the widows in the church at the time. And rather than the apostles doing that work for themselves, they actually raise up godly leaders to do that. And, and the reason they did that was so they could focus on the word of God and prayer. And in doing so, what happened? Well, the church continued to grow. Because proclaiming the word of God is how people are saved. It's how we grow in maturity in Christ. What a wonderful calling it is. What a wonderful thing it is to be involved in and engaged in gospel ministry. Now, I need to be reminded of this. Because I can just sometimes treat the work that I'm engaged in as just, as just a job, just an activity I do. And I, and I think in COVID times, it feels more like that than normal. Because the people who are hearing the Word of God are largely invisible to me from this side of the camera, right? They're even the people downstairs tonight, I can't see as I proclaim the Word of God. And so I need to remind myself that the work that I've been set apart for by the Holy Spirit and commissioned by Hunter Bible Church is a work of proclaiming the good news of the gospel in the city of Newcastle. And that is a wonderful privilege and a wonderful joy that I ought to be engaged in that work. And the church, just as it did back then, needs more and more workers to go out into the harvest. See, what did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, 
to send out workers into his harvest field. Friends, I want to ask you to pray. Pray for workers to go out into the world. Pray for workers to go out across our nation and to be involved in proclaiming the gospel. Pray for workers to be raised up within our church to proclaim the gospel to our kids and, and, and to one another through growth groups or our life series or connect series or whatever it might be. Will you ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in you that prompts you to take on such a work? Whether that be part-time or full-time or just a few hours a week. That's a scary prayer, isn't it? But pray to the Lord of the harvest. Now, where is this work being done? Well, <clears throat> in this chapter, you get lots of names of towns and cities. But essentially, Paul and Barnabas at this point are being sent out on a missionary trip to take the gospel to Gentile regions. And they start in a place called Antioch. And they travel through Crete into Asia Minor. And that's where the bulk of the chapter and Paul's sermon is actually preached. It's preached in Pisidian Antioch, right? So it starts in Antioch, but then ends up in Antioch in the region of Pisidia. And at the end of the chapter, after the Jews continue to reject the gospel, they actually dust off their feet and they head off to Iconium. And next week, uh, we're going to open up Acts chapter 14 and we'll see the rest of this particular missionary journey. And the way they go about their work largely is that they start in the Jewish synagogues in these regions and they argue and they reason and they persuade and they proclaim the word of God in those Jewish synagogues. Which means that his primary audience is still the Jews but also includes some Gentile God-fearers. Have a look at the way he addresses people in the synagogue. Verse 16. Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God. Listen to me. And down in verse 26 in the same sermon, he says, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. And so he identifies himself with the Jewish people, but he's also very self-consciously preaching to the Gentiles who had some knowledge of the Bible, some knowledge of the God of the Bible. Presumably they'd been going along to synagogue for some some time and they were worshippers of him, of God. And so what we find in this sermon is that it's steeped in Old Testament history. And the big message of this sermon he preaches at Pisidian Antioch is Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Right? That is the very first, that's the big message of this whole sermon. And the first thing he wants to point out is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And the way he does that, he moves very swiftly to some old, through some Old Testament um, ideas. And he highlights the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings and the conquest of Canaan and entering into the promised land and the institution of judges to rule over Israel and then King Saul and then lands on King David. Interestingly, uh, the pattern he follows kind of mirrors uh, one of the Psalms, Psalm 78 from the Old Testament. And, and so perhaps that was actually what was read before he got up to, to speak. But after a brief survey of the Old Testament, 
he lands on Jesus. And this is what he says. From this man, that's David, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. Right? So he's highlighting for them that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the great king who is promised all through the pages of the Old Testament. Ever since the time of David, Israel has been on the lookout. They've been waiting for, they're looking out for a king in the line of David. And this king in the line of David will do what David never could do. He's the king who brings salvation. See, see had the Jews in the first century recognized that Jesus was the fulfiller of these promises and the prophecies that were written down. Not only written down, but regularly read aloud in the synagogues that they attended. Well, they would have received him. But instead, they reject Jesus. They condemn him, they cry out for his blood, they, and eventually they have him executed. But even in his death, Paul is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Have a look there in verse 26. It says, Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet, in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Now, now, we don't get here details of which prophets he's talking about that are fulfilled, but there are multiple allusions to the death of Jesus, to the death of the Messiah, written hundreds of years before Jesus is born. Famously, you might know Isaiah chapter 53. That would have been at the forefront of his mind as he preached in the synagogue that day. Isaiah 53 says in verse 4, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him strict, punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought, him, brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It's right there in the Old Testament, 700 years before Jesus. And this is a constant theme in the preaching of Acts. The idea that the Jews put him to death, but his death at the hands of his own people was always God's plan. All through the speeches in Acts, you see this. In Acts chapter 3, for example, in verse 17, Peter says, Now fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. And again and again, that's a theme. And so we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises that this king would come from the line of David. But not only was it promised that he would come, but he would offer salvation through his death. See, the death of Jesus was always part of God's plan. It's not plan B. It's not a stroke of genius on God's behalf to adapt the, the, the game plan along the way when things got a little bit out of control. It was always plan A, written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. 
In fact, the Bible tells us God had planned the death of his own son even before he created the world. Have a look in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you are redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Can you imagine how vast and deep the love of God is for him to be so committed to you and to your salvation and your forgiveness that even before he created the world, he chose his one and only son to die in your place, to be a sacrifice for your sins. Isn't that mind-blowing? Jesus' death fulfills the Old Testament. It was always plan A. And finally, Paul wants to press home the resurrection. And again, in particular, he wants to show us how Jesus fulfills God's promises through the resurrection. So have a look in verse 29. Acts chapter 13, verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written about him, which is talking about his death, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And again, a massive theme in the book of Acts. The apostles, they wanted to testify to the fact that they were witnesses, eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. But they also want to point out from the Old Testament that this really should have been on the forefront of the minds of the Jewish people all along. They should have recognized the Messiah because of the resurrection. And in order to kind of back this up, he goes to three passages. He goes to Psalm 2, where the Messiah is declared to be God's son. Uh, and so there's a little quote there. He says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Isaiah chapter 55, where the Messiah is the recipient of the blessings of rule and inheritance initially that were promised to David. And so that's from Isaiah 55. And he says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And then Psalm 16, where we see that God's Messiah would never see decay. You will not let your holy one see decay. And he argues that all of those passages they can only possibly find their fulfillment in Jesus. They only find their fulfillment in Jesus because unlike David, Jesus was raised and is alive in heaven today. So in verse 36, this is what he says. He says, Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Do you see the logic here? How can David be the Psalm 2 figure? How can he be the fulfillment of Psalm 2 when he's dead and buried? He can't be God's son. How can David be the fulfillment of Psalm 55? 
when he's dead. He's not the recipient of the rule and inheritance that was originally promised to him. How can David be the fulfillment of Psalm 16? He can't be the Psalm 16 Messiah because his body did see decay. But Jesus was raised and his body did not see decay. And he's the living and active ruler of God's kingdom as you enjoy a cup of tea at home tonight. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Now, what does this mean? What Paul's been saying all along here is, listen to the Old Testament. Listen to what the Old Testament is saying about who Jesus is. Listen to the Old Testament and don't reject the Messiah. So in verse 40, he says to the Jews, he says, Take care that what the prophets had said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Do you see what he's saying there? He, he rips this quote from Habakkuk and, and he says, Don't be a scoffer. The prophets, they've warned you not to be filled with unbelief. Don't be like that. And yet that's exactly what they do. They don't listen to the prophets. And now it's not all of them. We, we see that some of the Jews at least were eager to hear more after he first spoke in the synagogue. But the Jewish leaders in particular were guilty of rejecting and refusing the word of God. In verse 44, it says... <coughs> on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and they heaped abuse on him. In verse 49, it says, The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. They have done exactly what the prophets warned them against. Don't be a scoffer. Don't be the fulfillment of these Old Testament warnings. And they heap abuse and they contradict what Paul is saying and they stir up trouble and persecution and they refuse to believe the good news. And what happens here? Well, it's devastating for the Jewish people. The Jewish leaders and those who followed their leaders into unbelief reject the message and the messengers turn to the Gentiles. You see that in verse 46 like we did before. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you Jews first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves eternal, worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And then finally, in, in verse 51, we see them, they shake the dust off their feet as a warning to the Jewish people and they leave town. But on the flip side of the coin, the Gentiles receive the word of God. Now, I, I'm assuming this includes the God-fearers who had been going to synagogue for some time, but, but also there would have been others who turned out that day with the whole city to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say about Jesus. And this is how they respond in verse 48. It says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord. 
and all who were appointed for eternal life believe. So the Jews reject and scoff and the Gentiles accept the word of God gladly. Friends, how we respond to the word of God matters more than anything else in this life. It's a matter of life or death, salvation or judgment and it's very easy to just be a scoffer. To be a scoffer doesn't actually take any effort at all. Just requires going along with the crowds. That's what happens here. It doesn't require any investigation or thought or inquiry. Or You can just be a scoffer. And to be honest, most people who I meet who are like this, they, they really have no idea why they don't believe. They just never did and so they don't. And they've heard a few arguments against Christianity in passing, but they've never really looked properly at God's word. And so they scoff. And they mock. And sometimes they even incite persecution. But to be one of God's people, to receive God's salvation requires listening carefully to the word of God and to weighing up what it says and believing this wonderful news. Because it is wonderful, yeah? Fantastic news. In verse 38, you see how wonderful this news really is. He says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Now, the first thing we need to see here to understand how good this news is, is just what Paul was saying about the Old Testament. He's saying a careful reading of the Old Testament will show you that you cannot be justified, you cannot be made right with God by obeying the law. Law obedience won't get you there. In fact, the law tells the law of Moses tells us that we're not we're not able to be good enough for God on our own. And Jesus does what the law could never do. Jesus brings forgiveness of sins jesus justifies us through his death and resurrection and he does it by dying in our place and in his death he wears the curse of god for our rejection of him and makes us right with the father see how we respond to that word is what life is all about nothing else matters Nothing else matters for you or your friend or your family or for, or for the people of Newcastle, for the oppressed, for the wealthy, whoever it might be. Nothing else matters more than this. This is the number one issue in life. Will you, be, will you believe and receive eternal life? Or will you be a scoffer and reject the Messiah? Now look, I don't know how you ended up watching this on YouTube, but if you're not yet a Christian, can I encourage you, don't just slip into being a scoffer, but listen and inquire and believe the good news. He has died and been raised to life for your forgiveness. But maybe you've been a Christian for a while and if that's the case, then I want you to be encouraged I want you to be encouraged by the fact that what you believe is not a fairy tale. It's actually history. 
Paul is proclaiming a message that, well, is firstly grounded in the historical details of the first century. But more than that, you believe in the Messiah of the Old Testament. The fulfillment of Scripture ought to bring us great comfort because it means that Jesus is is not some self-announced spiritual guru. The Old Testament actually announced the coming of Jesus. Israel's history announced the coming of Jesus. The Jews looked forward to the arrival of the Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years. And God spoke through the prophets to prepare the people of God for his arrival. Now the tragedy is that when he arrives, they fail to recognize him. They kill him. And Paul says, well, even that is actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And he's raised back to life. And Paul says, see, he really is the Messiah. His body didn't see decay. And the good news goes out to the Jews, but they reject the message. And the Gentiles receive the word of God. And even that response that the Jews would reject and the Gentiles would receive, well, that is forecast in the Old Testament as well. See, what we believe doesn't begin with Jesus. You believe in the Jewish Messiah who is etched into the pages of Israel's history. You believe in the Jesus who fulfilled those, those prophecies, those words in the Old Testament through his life, through his death and his resurrection. Now that's comforting, yeah? Knowing that Jesus was God's plan all along. Knowing that this is not some kind of half-baked effort from the God of the universe. But this is his deep, profound commitment to grant you forgiveness and eternal life. Surely that is a sign that God loves you. I love the way this chapter ends. It just says the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. May that be true for us also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son who fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies. We thank you that all of the promises you made to your people are answered with a hearty yes in Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us not to be scoffers, but to believe. And for those of us who are filled with doubt, help us instead to be filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.